Well, today is the final sermon in a seven-part series that we've titled Back to the Bible. And in 10 years of ministry, I got to tell you, this has been my favorite series that I have preached. It's the most fun I think I've had. I want to thank you for the encouragement and the engagement that you all have had in this series. And my hope, my prayer as we started all of this is that you would be encouraged, that you would be challenged, that you would be excited to go back to the scriptures. Maybe this new year is one of those years you want to say, I'm going to read through the Bible in 2019. We would love to hear those commitments and challenges from people in this church. Or maybe it is to maybe read scripture at a deeper level and to commit to a depth, not so much the width of scripture. Any way that happens, we want to challenge you to be in the word. It is a word that has been breathed for our training and our righteousness and to make us wise unto salvation. Now, the main passage we've looked at in this series is probably the clearest description of how the Bible works and why it's useful uh, to the church and to the ongoing Christian life. That passage in the New Testament comes from 2 Timothy chapter 3. And we've talked about that passage several weeks in a row. Probably the most important New Testament passage. But today, I want to take you to a different passage of Scripture. Uh, What I think may be the most helpful image from the Old Testament about what the Scriptures are and how we're to work with them. And so if you would, turn with me to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 32, and I want to read a story about a a guy named Jacob and about uh, uh, this passage that I think is helpful as we seek to struggle with Scripture. Uh, Jacob is the uh, grandson of of Father Abraham, or actually the, the, let's see if I got this, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the grandson. Jacob's uh, father uh, is Isaac, and he's the younger of twin boys. And this Jacob character knows how uh, to hustle for the blessing. He knows how to work hard or to do what's needed, sometimes even what's unrighteous, in order to receive uh, what he believes is his. And I want to read this story from Genesis 32, and then we'll come back to it a little bit later in our time together. Genesis 32, verses 22 and following. That night, Jacob got up and took his wives, his two female servants, and his 11 sons and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. And after he'd sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. And when the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, what's your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? And then he blessed him there. Again, we'll come back to that passage a little bit later. Let's pray as we open God's word this morning. Father, you have been faithful through the generations from the days of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and even Joseph and the story of the Exodus all the way through exile. Yes, you've been faithful. And on to Jesus and even to the current day as you continue to call leaders in your church. My prayer this morning, God, is that you would continue to guide us on this journey through your word, that you would allow us to be a people who were sent on mission for your purposes and empowered by your Holy Spirit for the work that you have ahead. God, we live in a day and an age that needs your church to be faithful. It needs your church also to show the compassion and love of Jesus. And so God, would you help us to live with that grace and truth in our lives? I pray this morning you would pour through me the gift of preaching so that Christ would be formed in our hearts. 
It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. I want to begin the sermon this morning in a blue and yellow box with the letters I-K-E-A on the outside. Have you been to this store? We have shopped at Ikea before, and uh, we have several pieces of furniture from Ikea. And I'll tell you, Holly has done a good job putting together all of those pieces. Um, I'm not real good with my hands. That's two confessions over the last three weeks. I'm a bad cook, and I'm telling you, if I didn't have a voice, I don't know if I'd be of use to my family. During those uh, late nighters, when I watched Holly put that furniture together, it was real important a piece of paper that she, uh, she paid attention to as she was putting together those pieces. It was this instruction manual, and, and some of you do real well with instruction manuals, and some of you may struggle a bit more, but it was real important. And, and as, I, as she's putting these pieces of furniture together, I can't help but think in the midst of this, wouldn't it have been helpful? When we left the hospital with each of our three kids, if we could have been handed one of these manuals, instruction manual about how you care for these children. I mean, I, the hospital probably ought to have a lawsuit put against us or, or put against it for letting us take our child home that first time. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. How in the world will I care for this child? And why are all these crazy drivers driving at the speed limit? Take more care, right? Some of you remember that drive. As I think about the Bible, as I think about what I expected when I was handed this book, I I think I thought about Scripture as an instruction manual of sorts, as if it was a handbook, a manual for life to be done. But as I got to read it more, as I read more of the details and the struggles that were there, I realized it didn't answer the questions I wanted answered as clearly as I'd like it. Because I'd like a 10-step list to a lot of things. I'd like answers to specific questions I have asked. And some of those are really hard to find in the Bible. Questions like, what is the best way to raise your kids? We see more examples of how not to in Scripture than how to do it or how to manage our money. Again, there are principles there, but there's not a list. It's clear. Or or how to deal with fill and accounting. How many of you have a fill and accounting you need help dealing with, right? So there's a question that's emerged for me about the Bible uh, as I thought about this. Why doesn't God make it uh, easier to simply read the Bible and do what it says. Now, in a sense, there are those places that are simple, aren't there? There's the Ten Commandments. There's places where we're given commands that are real easy to live out, but not all of it is that clear cut. And my short answer to that question is, is this. This sometimes confusing, confusing, often complicated, not always clear cut answer giving Bible, I believe is perfectly suited to form us into the kind of people God created us to be. It's my belief that we ought to, in humble submission, accept the real scriptures that God has provided us as they are, rather than ungratefully and stubbornly forcing scripture to be something that it is not. See, we have this library of books, not a science textbook, not, a, not an instruction manual or an owner's manual online. What we have is this fascinating, messy, unpredictable, sometimes breathtakingly beautiful, and other times, viscerally repulsive collection of stories and poems and letters and accounts and gospels that reflect the growing conviction that, that we matter, that everything is connected, and that history is headed somewhere. And that, well, that is far more than enough, isn't it? One of the reasons the Bible is messier and more confusing than we would like is because it is multivocal. 
multivocal. And that's why this image of the library, I hope, has been helpful to you over the past seven weeks. Because when we pick up a, a book, when the Bible is all collected together like this, it's, it's simple to think about it like most books that we pick up, that there was an editor that came together and made sure there's no contradictions, there's no divergencies, there's no questions about any of it, but what we've been handed is a library instead. And, and when I think about a library, I mean, how many of us, when we go to the library, expect all the books to consistently make the same point? No, of course not, right? We come and there are different genres and there are different topics and there are authors that disagree with one another. And as a library of 66 books written by 40 authors over a span of 15 or 1600 years in three different languages on three different continents with different multiple genres and literary styles, what is amazing is that there is one subject that's the center of it all, God. And, and God's a pretty big subject. And the various authors uh, of the Bible, sometimes talk about God with, and what life uh, with God is like from different perspectives, just, just like many of us do. And because they're writing from different perspectives or different parts in this story, they sometimes say things that appear to challenge or contradict each other. And this is what it means to say, to confess, that the Bible is multivocal. It contains multiple voices and perspectives, all guided and inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. And that fact can cause some of us to struggle with it. It can cause us to have some doubt along the way. But this morning, what I want to suggest to you is, is that it's actually a good thing that Scripture does this. And it helps us develop one of life's most important skills. So I want to do two things this morning. I want to describe, first of all, how Scripture is multivocal and how it describes things in different ways. I want to point out that. But then I want to demonstrate and explore why that's a good thing for us, why it's what God intended to hand to us. Now, to illustrate what that means further, what it means that the Bible is multivocal, I want you to imagine with me that we have on stage this round table with 40 chairs around the table, not large enough this stage for that, but, but imagine with me that image of a, of a table. There's this round table, and all of the writers of Scripture are sitting around that table with us this morning. And we get the chance to bring questions to them that we've always had about God, about the scriptures. They're qualified. They've written these books. They've had the experience of God breathing into them in some way to inspire them for these scriptures. And so I don't know about you, this would be my dream scenario. You get to ask these questions to these great writers. What would you ask them if you had the opportunity? Well, as I'm imagining this discussion, I ask a question to these 40 around me. And the question is this, what does God require of humanity? What does God want from us? And real quickly, the writer of Leviticus says, well, how long do you have? And everyone around the table chuckles, you know. And he says, what God really wants is sacrifice. Not, not a metaphorical sacrifice, a literal animal sacrifice. And it's important not just that you sacrifice animals and the, it's done in the right way. It has to be done just as I said it should be done. This is what will make you right before God. You have to get all the details right. And the prophet Isaiah then steps up and says, well, I'm not sure I would say it that way. And then he quotes from his own book, which is a little pretentious to do, right? But, but, but I want to pick up several books, actually, because these authors have several things that they're going to say to us uh, today. So I, Isaiah, and I'm going to come and talk from Paul and Romans, because, man, it's interesting how these different authors have different things to say along the way. But let's start, first of all, with well, with Isaiah and what he opens his book to say. Isaiah 
chapter 1, verses 10 through 17. This is his response to the writer of Leviticus. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me? Says the Lord, I have more than enough of burnt offerings of rams and of the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you? This trampling of my courts. Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations. I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals, I hate with all my being. They've become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I'm not listening. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. And so you hear the response, the retort of Isaiah. Sacrifices? Surely not. And Micah, another prophet that's sitting nearby, says, yep, I agree with Isaiah. That's exactly what God wants. Then the apostle Paul raises his hand, and he has one word on his lips about what God requires. Faith. Faith is what God requires. Uh, Open with me, if you would, to Romans chapter 1. Romans 1, verse 17. This is what he says. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And Habakkuk, one of the prophets in the Bible, speaks up and says, hey, you stole that from me, Paul. You didn't give me credit like you should have. And Paul says, you're right. You're right. That's the same spirit speaking through both of us. But then James speaks up. I've got James' book here somewhere. James speaks up and he reads from his book. Remember, James is the brother of Jesus. And these are the words that he speaks, challenging Paul a bit. James 2.24 You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. Remember that, Paul. I've got that over you. And then Paul counters by pulling a second book out, which James doesn't have, right? He pulls out Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2, and he says, do you remember, though, what I wrote, James? You may have a problem with this, but this is what I had to say. Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. But James doesn't back down. James goes a few verses later in verse 26, 226, and says, As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. How do you decide this effort, right, this problem? Well, the church has been struggling this for a few generations. But then Luke doesn't open his gospel, but he says, no, 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 no. Repentance and baptism. Those are the essential parts of what it means, what God requires. Of course, these are important. Well, now I know I'm over my head with these authors, and so I decided to move on from that question to another question, maybe an easier question. Why, why does God allow bad things to happen to his people? And the writer of Deuteronomy is quick with an answer. He says, that one's easy. Bad things happen to, to God's people because they don't keep God's law. Moses made this very clear in Deuteronomy 28. Obey God's commands and you'll be blessed. Good things will happen to you. You'll live a long and prosperous life. But if you break the law, you'll be cursed in every way imaginable. Bad things happen because you broke a law. And the writer of Exodus shakes his head and says, well, some, sometimes bad things happen not because of anything you do, but because of what your parents did. 
And he quotes from Exodus 34 and says, God does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children to the, for the parents' sin to the third and fourth generation. So sometimes it's not your fault, it's actually your parents' fault. And then Ezekiel the prophet speaks up and has something else to say about all this. Ezekiel says, well, that's not what the Lord told me. <laughs> and Ezekiel actually had heard from the Lord. So uh, turn with me, if you would, to the book of Ezekiel. And listen to Ezekiel's word in chapter 18. I want to read verses 1 through 4 and then verse 20. The word of the Lord came to me. What do you people mean by quoting this proverb about the land of Israel? Parents eat sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, you will not no longer quote this proverb in Israel. For everyone belongs to me, the parent as well as the child, both alike belong to me. The one who sins is the one who will die. Again, the one who sins is the one who will die. The child will not share the guilt of the parent, nor will the parent share the guilt of the child. The righteousness of the righteous will be credited to them, and the wickedness of the wicked will be charged against them. In other words, if bad things happen to you, it's because of something you did. Not someone else, not your parents. You have no one else to blame. And the writer of Job all of a sudden can't hold back. Writer of Job slaps the table and says, this must have been where those friends of mine got that idea about, you need to confess your sins, Job. It must have been from actually the Bible he picked that up. They picked that up. And sure enough, Job, the writer of Job tells the story. Job was a blameless man. There's nothing that he did wrong. And his, his friends, they come in, and then for seven days, they're a great blessing. They're silent. But the minute they open their mouths... Start to share these words about, you know, you need to confess if you've done something wrong. We know how this works. You've read scripture, haven't you, Job? And the writer of Job is trying to make another point altogether. Maybe sometimes it's not our fault. And about this time, I notice, as I'm over here talking with uh, these prophets and, and people, that, that there's four people on the other side of the table that are they're talking. They're having their own conversation. They seem completely uninterested in what we've been talking about. And I notice who it is. It's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And I'm thinking, okay, guys, um, I've been, I got some questions for you. Tell me, what is the most important thing about Jesus? And so Matthew speaks up first. What can you tell me about Jesus? And he says, well, Jesus came to fulfill the law and the prophets. So following him is the key to following God's law. And then Mark says, no, no, no. James, uh, Jesus came to show that being faithful to God leads to suffering before it leads to glory. And then Luke actually speaks up and says, no, that's not true. Jesus came to welcome the, the poor and the oppressed and the marginalized into the kingdom of God. And then John says, no, Jesus came to show us what God is like by doing on earth what he sees his father doing in heaven. This is what I mean when I say the Bible is multivocal. I think if you were to get those authors of scripture around a table, it would be really hard for them to agree. I'm not sure that they would all say it the same way. And yes, many of them are writing in different contexts or different situations. And doesn't that shape your response, the people that you're giving an answer to? You give a different answer to your child than you might give to someone else who's advanced in the faith. And if someone's dealing with a particular issue or problem, you might give them an answer different than somebody else who's dealing with another difficult problem. See, different parts of the Bible are in conversation with each other. Maybe even some would say in disagreement with each other on some key points. 
The Bible seems to show different characters in the Bible challenging or even faithfully questioning what is said in other parts of the Bible. I think the, the book of Job is actually a challenge against Deuteronomy and some of the words that are said early on about how this works out, how suffering happens and why it happens. And it's for the purpose of helping us discern the will of God. Derek Flood talks about this in his book, Disarming Scripture. He describes this as faithful questioning, and, and Scripture's full of this kind of stuff. There's a tradition in the scriptures where God's people are called to engage in the faithful questioning of, of scripture and the traditions that are within scripture. And we see this modeled throughout the Bible. And this happens several different ways. Sometimes it's, it's a human being who's struggling with God. As in when Abraham is challenging God and saying, hey, if for a few righteous people, would you save the city of God, Sodom and Gomorrah? Sometimes it's God in conversation with God. <laughs> At one point in the story, God says circumcision is absolutely essential to be a part of God's family, non-negotiable. And then later on, God's people discern that that's not necessarily the case as the Gentiles enter in, that there's a new day, and it's not necessarily circumcision that does it. Sometimes, though, it's humanity in conversation with other humans. The author of Proverbs says the secret to a meaningful life is following the path of wisdom as far as it goes. Uh, laid out by God, cre who created all things. But just a few books later, in the book of Ecclesiastes, it counters and says, well, I followed the path of wisdom as far as it would go, and life is still meaningless despite all that. Now, this is the Bible we've been given. And what we find in the Bible is this ongoing conversation between multiple voices about what it means to be faithful to God in the particular circumstances and situations these people find themselves. And we see this in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And if you believe, as I do, that the Bible is inspired by God and that God is ultimately responsible for all these different voices and perspectives being included in the Bible, then we have to ask another question. How does this multivocal nature of the Bible serve God's purpose of using Scripture to train us in righteousness? Because that's what Paul says in 2 Timothy 3. Things are going to train you in righteousness. It's there to correct and rebuke and encourage, and so forth. I want to answer that question with a couple of stories. As a father, one of my favorite times uh, that I have with my family is around bedtime. We have our rituals to put them down. Sometimes it works, and sometimes it doesn't work so well. But one of the things we love to do is we love to wrestle with each other, my kids. And, and usually at some point before bedtime, one of us is going to ask a question. It's going to sound something like this. Want to wrestle? Sometimes it's my son, sometimes it's one of my daughters, sometimes I'm the one who starts the wrestling match. It's our love language. It's one of the ways that we connect with each other. It's one of the ways that we serve and show love for one another. And one of these days in the next few years, I'm going to have a challenge on my hands because Maddox is getting a little bit older. That day's not today, I want to assure you of that, but it's coming. It brings me back to another story, a story we read earlier in Genesis 32 story of Jacob wrestling with what appears to be a man at first, and a strong one at that, who's intent on a fight, and they wrestle all through the night, each one gaining the upper hand at one moment, only to lose it the next moment. As dawn breaks, and it becomes clear this stranger is no mere man, but rather the very presence of God, Jacob musters the gall to demand a blessing from his opponent. And God does. God relents and delivers a blessing to Jacob in the form of a name change. So from now on, Jacob will be known as Israel. 
which simply means this. He struggles or wrestles with God. The fighting ends in Genesis 32, but not before Jacob sustains an injury to his hip, one that leaves him likely limping for the rest of his life. Isn't it interesting that this is the origin story of Israel, the people's name? Not just Israel, uh, this character, but it becomes this name, the Israelites. That's an interesting name to be given a people, the people who wrestle or struggle with God. When we accept this offer from God, want to wrestle? Uh, We all of a sudden receive what we wouldn't receive before that. We receive a blessing from God if we stay in the wrestling match. Some of us are in search of a blessing from God. We're saying yes to God's invitation. And when we do that, to wrestle with God with Scripture, to work out our salvation in fear and trembling, there is always a blessing on the other side. Now, why would God want to wrestle with us? Have you thought about that? Because when we wrestle with God and when we wrestle with the scriptures and with each other, when we have different perspectives on the scriptures, it makes us stronger. It makes us wiser. It increases our capacity to consider multiple perspectives as we discern the best path forward that's a godly response to the world we live in. I think the Bible's designed this way in order to teach us how to think. The Bible's designed this way to help us develop our moral judgment. It's designed this way to increase our wisdom so that we are better equipped to make decisions and to take actions that both honor God and bless our neighbors. And here's the lesson from all of this as well. If you're imagining that table with me or this bookshelf, you realize there's a lot of different people that God used in order to get these words on a page. And if the Bible is able to contain all of these different perspectives, all of these tensions, all of these different viewpoints, if the Bible can contain this challenge between Paul and James about how we work out faith and how we're pleasing to God, then maybe, just maybe, it's possible for us to disagree without having to disappear from one another's presence. We're a unity movement. We're a unity movement that's divided. We're a unity movement that once said that we're a back-to-the-Bible kind of people. And what I'm suggesting in this series as we close it down this week is that we do that. That the way we come to unity together is to struggle. It's to wrestle with Scripture, knowing that when we do it, we might come out with a limp, but the limp also comes with a blessing and with a clearer identity about who we are in Jesus Christ. Church, it's hard to be a church in the midst of, of all the divisions in our culture. It's hard to put away secondary things to make the primary thing Jesus and our identity in him foremost in our lives. And there will be an ongoing challenge in the days ahead for us to hold our unity in the midst of the disagreements that we have. One mentor that I had says it this way. One of the things that keeps the church together is our lack of communication. Because if you knew what people on your row thought about a lot of things, you'd want to run out the door. It's our lack of knowing each other. There's the very thing that keeps us together sometimes. But with the Spirit of God in the days ahead, with the leadership that we have, with the call that God will have on our church in whatever ways he calls us forward, Scripture gives us a model for the disagreements we have. And that is, you can sit around a table and disagree about what Jesus came to do. 
Or maybe say it a little differently for the context you're speaking to. Or you can answer the question, what does God require? And you can argue to your blue in the face about it. But in the end, these authors of Scripture are all bound together within about an inch of each other. Telling a story about a God who unites his body and draws us to salvation in one name. And that name's Jesus. And I think the challenge for us in 2018 is to believe that that's possible for us as well. We can disagree with each other without having to disappear from each other's presence. But the one thing that unites us is the word of God that we go back to. And it's Jesus Christ who this word points us to. The capital W word of God, the word that was there at the very beginning and came to dwell among us and still stands at the right hand of God. That's my prayer for us as a church is that we would go back to the Bible realizing it's more than just a book. It's a library of books and there's challenges all throughout, but it points us to Jesus and to unity in his name. And may we live that unity out, church. Let's pray as we close this morning. Well, God, I'm grateful for this morning. Grateful for the opportunity to, to have more uh, in our church, more leaders who are stepping up to accountable roles. God, I, I know that you have led us to this moment and to these men and to this time, and I thank you or then I pray blessings on them. But God, I pray also that we as a church would not shrink back from going back to Scripture, back to the Bible. It is the very thing that you have breathed into in order to lead us, to make us wise unto salvation. It's the very text that you have breathed into in order uh, to uh, make us the kind of people who are trained in righteousness and who follow Jesus more closely. And it's the very book that you continue to breathe into that we wrestle with, that we walk away with sometimes with a limp, but we also walk away with blessing when we dig deep. So God, my prayer is that you would allow us to exhibit the same unity scripture does and to point to the same God that scripture has in our day and our age. We pray this in the name of Jesus and all God's people said.